well, that, that last song has some powerful truth in it. Um, it's really hard to sing those words and not consider the concepts that we're going to be talking about today regarding humility. You guys remember we're doing this series on Philippians, and in the first week we talked about learning to love in truth. Then last week we talked about learning to love in suffering. And then this week we're talking about learning to love in humility. My name is Joe Davis. I'm the lead teaching pastor here at the Garden. And as we've been going through this series of with love from prison, reminding you that as Paul writes these things, he's in a, a dungeon facing death, beheading, execution, for the sake of the gospel. And he's writing with a lot of emotion to one of his favorite groups of people, the church at Philippi. And we outlined the fact that he loves them with, with great affection. And what happens is during the midst of trial and suffering, and we talked about this uh, this last week, we talked about that in suffering, in some ways, you have a clearer context of what is really important. When you understand how your suffering can benefit others, could it be possible that you become more willing to suffer for others? Does that make sense? Like, if you really begin to understand just how beneficial it is for the body of Christ, count it all joy when you go through difficult trials. We learned about these things in James. Is it possible that we could ever get to the point in our mind that even though suffering is hard, that maybe we could, I don't want to say look forward to it, but anticipate it, knowing the benefit that it could bring not only us, but those around us? I mean, Christ willingly suffered for us, showing incredible humility, leaving what was his rightful throne to become one of us, to walk in our dirt, to walk in our filth, and then ultimately suffer and die. See, suffering when experienced within the benefit of the knowledge of Christ and his Holy Spirit can change your values. And it can also bring you the greatest gift and most important ingredient for spiritual growth and for love, and that is humility. Because I'm going to make a case for you today, you really can't love in arrogance. You can have affection, you can have appreciation, but you can't really love in arrogance. So we're talking about loving in humility. Let's look at the passages today. Uh, Philippians 2, 1 through 11. I've broken it up in three slides so you can read it. So if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection, and any sympathy, complete my joy, being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look, not, look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be held onto or grasped or kept held tightly, but he emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, 
even death on the cross. So you see there the, the combination of humility and suffering in the example of Christ. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed upon him or given to him the name that is above every name. As a result of his humility and suffering, God has exalted him and given him the greatest name. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. I want to break down a couple things for you in that passage. He says, if there's any comfort of love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection, any sympathy, any mercy. Comfort, the Greek word there, communicating to each other with a tenderness that sees into the fear of another and in love can speak to that fear. That is comfort. What a great ingredient for love, is it not? The ability with tenderness to see what people are afraid of and speak into that fear with love. He says if there's any fellowship, that's sharing or common participation in something by two or more people. We talked about that when we discussed loving in truth. So we have comfort. He says if there's any comfort, speaking to other people's fear with compassion, if there's any fellowship, a common goal, a common creed, if there's any affection which denotes the... This is what the Greek word explains. The physical organs of the intestines to communicate how deep emotions are felt. That's the graphic picture that Paul uses. And he does this quite often, by the way, in his writing. He uses graphic images that we would think, oh, but he's trying to explain the depths of what he means. He says, affection is not just, oh, I really like him. He's cool. Oh, she's adorable. No, no. Like, you know, when the kids were up here doing their little twirly thing, that was, that, was, that was adorable, and I had affection for them. Paul's talking about affection that runs so deep, you can feel it. I mean, physically. You guys have all been there. You've had love or affection for someone, whether it be a spouse or a friend or someone, that there's compassion and love and affection for them is so deep that you can feel it. And when they're hurting, you can feel it. That's what he's talking about when he says affection. And then mercy, deep consolation, having pity for the ills of others, compassions exhibited in action. So there's a difference between sympathy and mercy. Mercy has actions attached to it. Putting affection and mercy together, which leads to action. You got that? Affection and mercy together leads to action. <clears throat> now, don't we aspire to have a church that is characterized by these things? I mean, if we really want them to be a reality, a core value, things that happen quite often, we must install humility as the highest personal value in our church. And Paul explains the process exquisitely. First of all, he says in verses 1 and 2, identify common ground. He says that in verse 1 and 2. He says, if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort or love, any participation, any affection, complete my joy of being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord of one mind. He says that. That's loving and truth. And we talked about that. We don't have to spend a lot of time on that this week. 
Identify common ground. If we all here today identify our common ground as this, our faith and trust is in Christ and Christ alone. His death, his burial, his resurrection. We acknowledge our depravity and our sinfulness and we have faith and confidence that his blood removes that depravity in God's eyes. That's the common ground. That's what we believe here in the garden. But then he says to abandon <coughs> spiritual conceit. In verse 3 he mentions it. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. He's telling you to abandon this spiritual ladder of success that we seem to be on. You know what I mean by that spiritual ladder of success? Well, I have devotion several times a week. I pray hours a day. Dude, sleeping doesn't count. I'm a deacon. I'm an elder. I'm a pastor. That's the spiritual ladder of success. Abandon that. No more ambition when it comes to your spiritual walk or your position in the church. Abandon that. As a matter of fact, Matthew 7, 1 through 5, judge not that you be judged, for with what judgment you judge, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. And why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye? Do you not consider the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me remove this speck from your eye, and look, there's a big old two-by-four that is in your own eye. You hypocrite, first remove the two-by-four from your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the splinter or speck in your brother's eye. So clearly, we see the example there of Matthew 7, 1 through 5. He says, don't be critical. See, you know what happens? You know why we become critical? You know why we become critical of people who are in authority over us or people who are under us? We have depravity amnesia, I like to call it. You know what depravity amnesia is? It's forgetting that you're depraved. That's what depravity amnesia is. Guess what? You're depraved. So when you become critical, you're just as depraved as the person you're criticizing. Maybe not in that specific area, that specific day, but there's plenty of other things. Have you ever considered those whom you are critical of and assumed that you're above them in maturity? I mean, really, when you become critical of somebody, are you going on the assumption that you are better than them in a specific area? Paul says, don't think of others as better, or don't think of yourselves as better than other people. Think of them as better than you. He says, but in lowliness of mind, let each think of others as more significant than himself. You see, it's hard to be conceited spiritually if you truly understand and remember your own depravity. Maybe you need, you know, we all got these smartphones now, right? Maybe you should have like a reminder that pops up every hour, you're depraved. <laughs> Technology is great today. You can set it up, a repeating alarm. You can even put it on snooze if you want. <laughs> just for a while. After a while, you'll get depressed, discouraged, then you'll exit out. But just remember, before you get critical, you're depraved. Because there's no room at the top. You understand what I mean about this spiritual ladder of success? There's no room at the top. Because if you are trying to pull your brother or sister up to where you perceive they need to be, then you're not loving them. 
You're criticizing them. Listen, you need to be better. Come up here. How arrogant. And I displayed this for you in James, and I talked to you about how the fact that what we need to do when we're ministering to other people and encouraging them, we should have it in our mind that we're here and we're pushing them up. We're not trying to pull them up to where we are. We're pushing them up beyond where we are because they're already above us. And you see, if you begin to think about it, if you can have the encouragement of the brethren and sisters with that mindset, that's not critical. That's not arrogance. That's service. That's humility because there is no room at the top. And so the next thing I want you to look at he says to identify common ground, abandon spiritual conceit and ambition. Then he says abandon selfish spiritual agendas. In verse 4, he says this, right? Let each look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. You know, contrary to popular American thinking, this nor any other church does not exist primarily to scratch whatever liturgical worship itch you have or to meet your intellectual demands. It doesn't exist to satisfy your program appetite or fill any self-esteem gap that you may have. That's not the agenda for the church. Those are selfish ambitions. The agenda of the church should not be to satisfy its members, right? But to love and sacrifice for all those in need, both in and out of its fellowship. You see, if you're really going to have humility, you need to stop coming to church with expectations of being filled and come with anticipation of filling others. See, that really can only happen if the main quality and value of its members is humility. And Paul does give us a failsafe to remember when you find that you are in spirit that is arrogant instead of humility. He says, remember what Jesus did. In verse 5 to 11, I'll just read it for you. <clears throat> Having this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But we go through, he says he emptied himself, he became a servant, he was obedient to death, even on the cross. But now God exalts him. See, guys, he was God. He didn't take the power that God has. He willingly endured suffering for our benefit, died that we might live, and God in return has exalted him. And to really understand humility, <coughs> I think we have to first call out our own arrogance. Does that make sense? Because sometimes we can think, well, I do have some problems with arrogance, but maybe, see, I think many times we don't understand the depths of our arrogance. See, arrogance forces you to look out only for your own interests and needs. Even in ministry, this happens. And the difficulty is church ministry can have this deception of being godly 
But if it's filling your needs, and that's your motivation for being involved in it, arrogance is creeping in. Arrogance obsesses with moral outrage, political purity, or social correctness. No matter the ideology, these are churches who judge. They can be churches that are far to the left, churches that are far to the right. But moral outrage is a big source of energy for many churches. Political purity, social correctness. What, somehow your depravity is not as bad as others because your ideology is superior? See, arrogance obsesses with moral outrage. Right? It's obsessed with it. It's like licking chap lips. You're arrogant, but your moral outrage makes you feel godly. Arrogance can only criticize and judge. It can't love brothers and sisters. It can be critical of them. Here's another thing about arrogance. You know the things that Paul talked about, right? He talked about comfort. He talked about fellowship, affection, and mercy. Arrogance craves comfort. Arrogance craves fellowship. Arrogance craves affection. Arrogance craves mercy. We love those things, don't we? Don't we love to receive those things, guys? Yes? Just me? Give me all you got. But arrogance can't give them back. Arrogance can't give those things that we love. It can only receive them. And what's funny is, arrogance can receive those things and have some sort of warm, fuzzy affections for people. But it's because they gave you mercy and affection and fellowship and comfort. Does that define your love of the church? Because of what you have received in difficult times? I'm not saying that we can't appreciate it. But you can see how arrogance, that subtlety of arrogance can creep in. We have to be able to give these things back as well. You see, arrogance only has the ingredients to bake criticism and obsession with personal agendas and bitterness. That's an arrogant cake. That's an arrogant cake. Humility allows you to look out for the interests and needs of others. It can bake a much better cake of comfort, love, affection, and mercy. I worked all weekend baking these things and taking pictures of them for you. <laughs> Google search with the images click is awesome, isn't it? <laughs> it's so good. That's the type of cake we want to bake. Confession time, you ready? You guys love it when I confess my sin, don't you? Don't you guys love that? It's, I mean, oftentimes what happens is Mike changes the title to my sin. <laughs> Joe did this. It's really, and, and the podcast, you know, it's really great. Sometimes as a garden staff, you know, we get together as a team. And we might get frustrated and become critical of some of the people in our congregation. 
Now, of course, I don't mean any of you that is in the room today. We're talking about those who aren't here today. Those are the ones that we're critical of, never any of you. But when we teach you or lead you from the perspective that sometimes we can fall into as a staff of, hey, you guys need to get your act together. Without remembrance of our own sin and our own struggles, then we are arrogant. We are suffering from depravity amnesia. Therefore, our love for you is replaced by pious spiritual arrogance and personal agendas. And then the garden begins to be what it, we want it to look like instead of what God wants it to look like. And you guys can suffer from the same syndrome as us. And until we get to the point where we recognize that we must consider others as superior to us, then the encouragement, the comfort, the love, and the affection, then those things can begin to flow out of what we learn from our suffering. So as I close, I have a couple of questions for you. Are we as a church suffering as a collective group from depravity amnesia? I mean, are we escaping the benefits of humility because we feel like there's some things we do in the garden and at Church of the Palms that are really stellar? Or are we a humble church that generously distributes comfort, fellowship, affection, and mercy upon comfort and fellowship, affection and mercy with more comfort, with more fellowship, with more affection, with more mercy. Our prayer needs to be, God, please break us and humble us under whatever means necessary, even if it's suffering, so that we can be a church, a group of people that are constantly displaying, distributing comfort, fellowship, affection, mercy, Pray that it's overflowing, that it's abounding, that it's never-ending. Is it possible to get sick of comfort, fellowship, affection, and mercy? Is it possible? That's where I hope we get to. Look, we need a little arrogance in here. It's too comforting. It's too much fellowship. I don't like all this affection. Give me some judgment. I'm tired of mercy. Right? Guys, this is the vision that Paul lays out for us in the first part of chapter 2. He says you got to be of common ground and you got to have comfort, fellowship, mercy, and affection. And the only way you're going to get that is if you think of others as better than yourself. Look out for their interests, not only yours. Abandon this spiritual ladder of success. And let's become a massive Humility Cake Bakery. Because that sure tastes better than the other one.